This episode of Trapital is brought to you by Dice. Listen, buying concert tickets can feel like a project for your fans. They have to navigate through bots, resellers, fees, and may not know their favorite artist came to town until after. Buying concert tickets should be easier than winning a Grammy. That's where Dice comes in. It's a discovery platform for live shows. Syncing with Spotify or Apple Music allows fans to get recommendations for when their favorite artists or similar artists have a show near them. Dice is a great partner for artists too. If an artist wants to play bigger venues, grow revenue, or reach a wider audience, artists always benefit from Dice's data-driven planning. Grammy nominees, SZA and Lana Del Rey, will headline Primavera's festivals in Barcelona and Porto, and Dice is the ticketing platform for both events. Want to learn more about how Dice can partner with you? Visit dice.fm partners. That's D-I-C-E dot F-M slash P-A-R-T-N-E-R-S. You can also visit the link in our show notes. I've always thought that and wondered why. Grammys is a much better TV product. The opening beginning is a musical act. How fun is that? And we've seen this happen sometimes with the Oscars, but I feel it can often be... Hey, welcome to Trapital. I'm your host, Dan Runcy. This is your place to gain insights on the business that shapes music, media, and culture. We dive deep into the companies and moguls who start the trends that shape the rest of the business world. This episode is about the music industry's biggest night, the Grammys. But I'm not interested in who shouldn't or shouldn't win best pop performance. This is about the business behind the Grammys and each of the elements that make this annual showcase what it is. So we talk about the telecast and how this decades-long relationship between CBS and the Recording Academy has evolved and how this show continues to make money for both parties despite the decline in revenue year over year, not just for the Grammys, but for all award shows. We also talk about the Recording Academy itself how this nonprofit is set up, each of the different revenue-generating streams, and how a song gets nominated in the first place, who decides whether or not a song should get nominated when in each of those steps as well. But we also talk about every massive for-your-consideration business and why the rights holders, record labels, publishers, and more put so much time, energy, and money into making sure that their artists get nominated and can walk across that stage to accept the award. We also talk about some of the controversy too. You have to. This is the Grammys. There's a history of sexism, racism, and so many other issues to count that we do a deep dive into those as well and how those have continued to evolve over the years. But then we also talk about Grammy Week and why this is an important milestone and time for the music industry to come, network, celebrate, and honor everything that everyone has done in the industry. We talk about criticisms, some of our biggest snubs, and our ideas to improve the show. I'm joined by Zach O'Malley-Greenberg, friend of the pod, who's been to the Grammy several times and covered it. So let's dive in to the music industry's biggest night. All right, we're here to start off the new year and do a deep dive on music industry's biggest night, biggest event, and that's the Grammys. But we're not going to talk about the awards themselves specifically for this year. We're going to talk about the business behind the Grammys, all the machinations, how it came to be, where we are today. And I'm joined by someone who's an expert in this space. You've been to the show. I know you have a lot of opinions about it. Well, friend of the pod, Zach Greenberg. Welcome back, man. Thanks, Dan. Great to be here as always. Yeah, I mean, I've been to probably every ceremony to cover it throughout the decade of the 2010s in my capacity 
Cassidy for Forbes. And since the pandemic, haven't been back out there, but definitely a lot of stories to share, a lot, a lot of opinions on the business of it. So uh, yeah, let's let's dive in. Let's start there because I think that'd be interesting. Given that you probably had two relationships with it, both as a fan of music growing up and then as someone working the event, what was that like? What was it like to transition from one to the other? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I never really watched the Grammys growing up and I was just kind of faintly aware of them as, you know, a place where music is honored and definitely, you know, it was never a thing that I would watch with my family like we would watch the Oscars. You know, it was maybe more on the level of like the Golden Globes, you know, you're you're aware of them, you know that people are awarded, you know, maybe there's a little more controversy. I remember, you know, I'd hear about usually growing up, it would be, you know, some hip hop act was not properly honored, <laughs> which is a recurring theme, unfortunately. But then as I began covering music full time, it just became sort of the thing you do. If you're the music writer at a given publication, you ought to go to the Grammys. And, you know, I I think it it really is. And, you know, we can talk about how it's kind of overhyped and overblown and some of the negatives of of the Grammys. But as a journalist, it is cool to be able to be there and be in the room at the ceremony because they actually bring back uh, people who win, you know, and not everybody agrees to do it. But, you know, it's not as glamorous as you might think. You know, we're not, you know, wearing ballroom attire, you know, tuxes and gowns and stuff. I think they actually do that for the Oscars. If you go and, and cover that, you have to dress in a tux if you're a guy or like a floor length ball gown if you're a lady, but just like a bunch of sweaty journalists in the back of the Staples Center and like nobody knows where to send you. You know, there's only maybe a couple dozen of us and, you know, that sort of thing. And you sit there and you don't even have a window onto to the ceremony. You have a closed circuit TV. So, you know, I've seen all these great performances at the Grammys, but, you know, it's really on the closed circuit TV and you hear a little bit of a delay in the background. You can kind of hear like a really noisy performance, you know, a couple seconds before, but you sit there with your laptop, you write your stories, and then they do bring back some pretty interesting folks from time to time. And they have these like mini press conferences. So it's a nice chance for people to ask questions, let's say outlets that might not be able to get a certain type of artist attention or, you know, even for an outlet like Forbes, which, you know, I was able to to interview pretty much anybody, but there would need to be a story behind it, right? And a lot of artists wouldn't get out of bed for anything less than a cover. And, you know, we weren't going to do a cover on whoever it was unless they had some crazy business deal. So it was um, helpful to be able to pop in for a question or two with some of these high caliber artists. So you saw a lot of the media side of the machinations too, just of some of the horse trading of, okay, I'll do this if you give me this, but then you also want to see, okay, well, are you going to win? Are you going to be not? But it's so hard to guarantee any of those things. Yeah, absolutely. And and at Forbes, we definitely had like a <laughs> horse trading was strongly discouraged. So there wasn't much to trade, but you know, I think that that was kind of the benefit of the ceremony. You could just show up and be there and you could ask, you know, like Dave Grohl or Paul McCartney or Justin Bieber or Adele, you know, whoever came through ask him a question without having to sort of like engage in the not horse trading, <laughs> you know? And I think that was kind of a nice benefit. Right. It's it's a show that I've had an evolving relationship with over the years too. I feel like growing up, there were a few moments that stuck out. Lauren Hill and that iconic image of her holding her Grammys and winning album of the year was huge. And then I remember the year after that, that was when 
smooth with Rob Thomas and Santana one. And I believe that was also the Jennifer Lopez green dress that created Google images was from that Grammys. But still, it was more of those moments that came above the surface. And growing up, we talked about this with the MTV episode. It didn't nearly register the same way culturally that it did for me as a high schooler at the time when you're seeing albums like Nora Jones, Don't Know Why. I know it's a great song, but that wasn't what I was listening to. What I was listening to was what they were playing on MTV and BT at the time, but it wasn't until getting older and just seeing how a show like MTV, which we covered about the VMAs, didn't exactly maintain in the culture, but the Grammys, even though we'll talk about what its current legacy is now, has still been above any of the other music shows, still had some sort of relevance, and relevance in the way that if someone doesn't win or doesn't get nominated, what do people get the most upset about? And I've yet to see a recent tirade or artists that's upset about not winning a VMA or not winning any of these other music awards, but they still do about the Grammys, which still shows some level of significance, but I'm sure we'll talk about all that and where that really lies. It, it definitely means something. And, you know, it's a thing that you can always put in front of your name when you're a musician, Grammy winning artist, blah, blah, blah. You know, like once you get that Grammy, it can never be taken away. And that means a lot, I think, sort of emotionally to people, but also financially. And I've tried to quantify that so many times over the years. We, we can get into that later too. I mean, the short answer is it's tough, but it means a lot financially, you know. And even in some of the more direct things, I'm sure that when you were getting pitched by different publicists and PR firms, they always included Grammy nominator, Grammy wing. And if when, if it was relevant and subconsciously, it's hard not to at least Let me take a deeper look at that if there was a name that I didn't recognize in a way that you may not if that wasn't there. Yeah, it was also funny covering it for Forbes because, you know, the Grammys don't explicitly have a business angle. And so the pitches were always about, you know, something about the winning of the Grammy Award or the making of the album. But, you know, I always had to try to find the business angle. And a lot of the time it was going in and and figuring out how much the Grammy was worth to a given artist. And I think this place too is interesting because we're starting to talk a bit about the vanity that's related with an award and any award show. But that's so core to the Grammys history because this is an award show that started in the 50s and it started in the 1950s because they wanted to have more recording artists have stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. But the original rules up to that point were quite restrictive in terms of needing to sell a certain number of records and a certain number of albums. But there were all of these legacy artists that just didn't quite hit those metrics. So they said, hmm, what do we do? Let's create an official award show to be able to honor them. Yeah, it's so funny how these things work. And I think it also helped to give music a certain kind of prestige that it didn't have before. And, you know, today, right, music, movies, you know, it's glamorous, it's Hollywood, it's it's uh, prestigious for entertainment. Just, you know, winning a Grammy or winning an Oscar, I mean, it's pretty close, right? Music and, and Hollywood are, are equally seen as desirable, depending on, I guess, personal interest. But it's, it's you know, more or less on the same level. That was not always the case. And certainly in, in the middle of the century, music was seen as kind of a dirty business. It was even more connected to, you know, mob stuff. And, you know, you, you hear all these stories about gangsters loaning money to record record labels, you know, and, and connections of, you know, Frank Sinatra and mob ties and, you know, that, that whole thing all the way up through, 
I mean, even in uh, like the founding of Sugar Hill Records, we've talked about this, but that was founded with a loan from a mobster. It, you know, it was it was like kind of a dirty business, payola, the whole thing. And that's not to say that it's totally clean now either. Uh, but you know, it was it was definitely looked upon as a CD business. It was like a step above porn. I don't know. I mean, that's an exaggeration, but it had that that sort of sleaze to it. And I think the music industry has worked for a long time to sort of elevate itself to be considered something on par with film. And the Grammys were, were you know, part of that uh, transition, you know, beginning in the middle of the century. You bringing up Frank Sinatra makes me think of how upset Frank Sinatra was at The Godfather 1 because of the Johnny Fontaine character clearly having ties to the mob and it was so clearly based on Frank Sinatra. Of course, he's going to be upset about that, but that wouldn't have been about a actor in the same type of way. It was about a singer. It's funny to see, uh, you know, some some like nefarious associations now in the Hollywood sphere as well. And, and you know, maybe it's a, a little payback for the music business. And I feel like some of this too made the first few years of the Grammys a little bit tough because that whole first decade it was not a live broadcast it wasn't until 1971 that it becomes a live broadcast it was initially part of this showcase that they had almost like a variety show where it was okay at the end of this special then we would show you this pre-recorded taping of the grammys but it was in 1971 abc had it for a few years and then a transition to cbs where it's now been the home for over 50 years and that means it's now the longest standing award show that's been with one particular network which is so interesting because we've seen so many of these shows change hands over the years because of ratings because of relationships we even saw the golden globes and that whole fiasco just had it's now its first year with cbs so there's clearly that tie-in that the grammys has had with this station which has been cool to see at least in terms of that that consistency yeah i mean there's definitely a continuity that comes with that um that i could tell even over a period of like 10 years you know doing the show i mean it, you you kind of knew what you were going to get there was a system um there i guess that in the middle of my sort of tenure covering the Grammys, it switched from LA back to New York for a year. Everything was kind of going a certain way. And, you know, there was certain AV techs, you know, had been there for decades. And, and, and it was it was definitely a very smoothly run process um, behind the scenes, you know, even though there may have been some explosions and rants and so forth um, on stage and, and, you know, about not winning and, and what have you. Right. And I feel like the network piece too ties in as well with the host and the type of things they have. A lot of these award shows tend to lean on hosts that are working with the network in some way. So that's why I feel like in the past decade, especially some of the shows you've been to, it's LL Cool J, it's been James Corden, it's now been Trevor Noah, and these people will have it and they'll stick with it for several years. And it's interesting because I think some of these other award shows have catered and tried to take many risks in terms of the host, where we've seen it with the Oscars several times where they go with some host and, okay, that host goes too far. They go with this host and people feel it's boring. They go with no host. But the Grammys has found someone that can be the MC and really fit the mood of the night where, okay, there's going to be a few jokes here and there, but it does feel like, okay, this follows the ethos of what this network is as much as as difficult as it is for, I think, network television today to have an ethos, I feel like there's some continuity there. Yeah. And, and it is interesting to me, although music and film have become sort of, like we were saying, equally prestigious in, in the popular sphere, 
the the Oscars are still you know I think much better get much better ratings and it's it's more of an event than the Grammys. I I think that the Grammys it's a better show. I mean there are live performances, there's stuff happening, and I think the Grammys have done a great job of of sort of the live element. Um, but uh, you know, but it's interesting to me that even despite all that, the Oscars is still like the more prestigious ceremony, even if the um, you know, the, the industries themselves are considered sort of equal, you know, on equal footing. I've always thought that and wondered why. Grammys is a much better TV product. The opening beginning is a musical act. How fun is that? And we've seen this happen sometimes with the Oscars, but I feel it can often be hit or miss. I think it's also a show where weirder stuff happens in the Oscars than it does in the Grammys. But even more so when you think about the reach of music, you look at an artist like Taylor Swift, even as big as, let's say, movies like Barbie and Oppenheimer were, I guarantee you more people heard Taylor Swift in the U.S. than saw Barbie, or more people heard a lot of these other albums that were nominated for the biggest awards than saw Oppenheimer. But that just doesn't translate in that same way. I think in a way, there's just so much more music than there is film, or at least there's so much more music that's sort of out there, you know, being listened to by people than sort of movies being watched by people, right? I mean, how many movies does the average person watch in a given year? I think there's a lot more sort of common ground around movies to sort of have that water cooler talk and, you know, debate about, you know, what should have won and, and what shouldn't have won. And, and you know, it's like a smaller uh, universe of, of options, whereas in, in music, it's just, you know, there's so many categories and people might have totally different tastes about genres and so forth. So, uh, and there's just sort of like more, yeah, more commonalities to talk about with it. Because I think that in some ways, I remember we're talking about this a little bit when we were prepping for this, just the sheer number of awards and how, why that is and how that may have shaped things. Because you're right, there's less than a thousand feature films that get released in a motion picture way. Meanwhile, one record label probably has well more than a thousand songs that they are submitting themselves for Grammy consideration, right? So it's so different there. But there also are only 20-something Oscar awards that get given out. There are 90 or so Grammy awards. And as you pointed out, there were over 100 in past years. They flow and they go from different categories. And I think I've often thought about one of the quotes that Tyler, the creator, had said when he had won Best Rap Album. He said, oh, this is cool, but it feels like I'm the little brother and I got the controller that's plugged out and all of the big kids are playing with the four big controllers. And that is a bit apt because there are four big Grammy Awards that really do get the juice. It's Album of the Year, Record of the Year, Song of the Year, and Best New Artist. And to some extent, every other Grammy is like a 1B or 2 compared to those being the 1A for the top awards. I think it's only about a dozen awards are given out in the big telecast. It depends on the year and they, they kind of mix it around. Maybe it's a little less, maybe a little more. But, um, you know, there, there used to be over a hundred different awards and most of them were given out in this thing called the, the pre-telecast, uh, which was in a different building in the convention center next door to the Staples Center. And and that's where, you know, you, you would have like all these sort of pre-awards be given out. And, and so it, you know, you could totally understand why somebody would feel like the little brother if the you know, best rap album award is not in the main telecast, right? You you are actually segregated from the other awards, and um, and you know, there's so many of the genre awards that are set aside into that category. But I think for a long time it wasn't even televised, or I don't know, it's it's like not a sexy thing. It's like the pre Grammy Grammys for the less interesting categories, and it's four hours long, whatever. Um, it's it's sort of a weird thing, and I think you know now the 
Grammys puts it up online or you could stream it and watch it there. But, um, but, you know, we would be sitting as reporters, you know, watching all this on the closed circuit TV and, uh, you know, something would come up for best rap album and like Jay-Z or Kanye would win it, but they wouldn't be there. They'd never be there. Maybe they're coming to the main ceremony. Maybe not. You know, maybe they're not even going to claim their uh, album of the year thing. If the, the way they set it up, it, it does have that, uh, like most of the awards feel, you know, uh, kind of like there's not very much juice to them because they're not in the main, um, Grammy ceremony. And I think part of that challenge too is figuring out who is the right audience for this show. And I think this is something that the Grammys and other award shows have struggled with to some extent. Is it for the industry or is it for the fans? And CBS is clearly in the interest of trying to provide something that's more for the general public. That's why there are so many uh, performances. There's more performances than awards given out at this particular event. And they're really only picking the above board categories to honor at the show. But that said, there are still things that have the industry ilk to it, such as separating record of the year and song of the year, which obviously you and I both know the difference between, but the average person still doesn't get it. It's so confusing. I mean, how could you possibly know the difference if you were, you know, the average person, right? I mean, they should come up with a different, like a a more different pair of titles for those two awards, you know? I mean, it's just, it's just kind of ridiculous. Like people don't understand it. Yeah. And it makes you bring back to the the Oscars things for a se- for a second, they have that to some extent where they call out the screenplays. Okay, you have adapted screenplay versus the original screenplay, but still, that somehow isn't nearly as confusing as best picture. It's clear what this is, but record versus song, it, it still just stems back to how people are compensated, two different sides, and it's it's frustrating. And those are the things that make me think that, yeah, there still is straddling between that. And I get why you don't want to consolidate that because you have a whole business of publishing that is quite lucrative, especially in this catalog wave that we're now seeing. But how do you, if you are trying to make a TV product for the general public, those are the type of things that make it tough. Yeah. I mean, it is kind of a trade show, right? Uh, to some extent. And and publishing is, you know, it's half the, the music business. I mean, you know, roughly it's it's recording and, and it's publishing. Publishing is a very confusing and boring industry. And, and nobody, like the average person has no idea it even exists. I mean, I remember growing up and, you know, I just thought that anybody who sang a song also wrote the song, especially with rappers. I was like, you know, I was like, okay, well, I get, I get it. If like maybe you're a songwriter and you can't sing, but why, why do rappers have ghostwriters? <laughs> like, you know, I don't understand. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. And then, like, even some of the most popular songs, you're like, wait, this person did that? Like, Jay Z was involved with still DRE? What? Right, like, right. Things like that. And then even like dating back earlier, like. Otis Redding and Aretha Franklin. I guess this has always been a thing that's there. So I get why you want to highlight one versus the other. But again, that makes it more of the trade industry thing and less of the consumer product to some extent. Obviously, the Grammys, the Recording Academy has been trying to diversify its voter mix, but it has been for the longest time a bunch of old white guys who like rock music. And so that has obviously led the Grammys to vote for those types of musical productions, you know, rather than hip hop or any number of other um, genres. And so the tension was always like the people who cared the most about the Grammys were the same people who were sort of like the the voters, right? And they sort of wanted to see those types of music, you know, 
awarded. But uh, the obviously the network wants to expand the audience to get younger, but the younger people don't care because it's only honoring the stuff that, you know, was put out like for the old people. So it's it's kind of a catch-22. And, and I think it's been a um, tricky line that the Grammys have had to walk. Things have improved, but it's still like not entirely clear that, you know, that, that they're better. And certainly I think that's kind of the eternal problem for the Grammys. I think young people are just not that interested in award shows. Yeah, award shows definitely struggle in an era where you can get the results instantly by following along live. And it isn't something like live sports where it's not just the result, it's how the result is taking place as part of the entertainment. And I think that's a bit of a struggle. Other competition shows have some elements of this, like American Idol has always been able to add some drama into who gets voted off or who gets added in. But in shows where the result is there, but it's more so... Your people used to watch it for the what, but now that the what is something you can completely get from social media and the how isn't as enticing, it's tough. So it's interesting to see how CBS has continued to maintain this. They had signed the most recent deal they had. I believe it was in 2014. This is a show where I believe they pay around $20 million plus to license it. They're able to sell $60 million worth of advertising from it. So there is the money that comes in from that, which is good. But to your point, the voters have a completely different focus because they there is clearly some need to want to modernize it. And I think we've seen it where, as you called out, they have tried to make sure that they're increasing the number of women that get nominated for or, or that are part of the voting process, the number of non-white voting members, younger people as well. And that probably has shaped some of the more recent results that we've seen, which have been kind of cool, but there are also still plenty of wild cards that we see as well. But just to talk about the voter piece a little bit. So there's two levels of Grammy membership. You have voting and non-voting members. And to be a voting member, this is one of the award shows that does pride itself on being for the recording artist or the songwriters or for the engineers or people involved with the actual piece of it. So you either need to have been uh, won an award before you need to have either been part of a record that was commercially released successful in some type of way or you do get recommended by someone but then you also have the non-voting member aspects of it too but in order to get there there is some type of threshold that you do have to cross so i believe like this and several other award shows have increased the number of voters but you also have 10,000 plus people voting on it. So it can be very tough to actually have a process where you're ensuring that everyone can actually listen to everything. And they don't necessarily ask that because they do have around, I think you do have to vote on a minimum of 15 categories based on what you have. And then if you have a specific genre lean that's there. So you do assume that the people that are voting for a genre have listened to everything, but you still can't 100% confirm that. And then, you know, you got to think about the voters have to pay dues, right? Every year. What is it? It's something like 150 bucks a yeah. year is not a lot to some people, but is a lot to some people, especially people working in music who are just trying to make it. And, you know, um, I think if you look at sort of the um, the way that wealth is organized in America, obviously it's concentrated, unfortunately, more in older white and male people. And so like those are the same people who would be more likely to not, you know, think about having to pay dues and not have that be a meaningful amount of money. And so, you know, it's that much harder to, to attract um, like a younger, more diverse group of people. And that's probably a good time to talk about some of the economics behind how it works. So you called out, I believe it's 125 is the annual fee and there's over 22,000 members. So 
you're talking well over $2 million just from fees that come from it. You also have the tens of millions of dollars that come from the licensing fee that the big network pays in order to broadcast it. But then you also get donations as well. So Music Cares, which is one of the nonprofit um, fundraising events that they have each year before the Grammys, donates its money to musicians that are struggling with different benefits that people that have jobs that have benefits and whether it's healthcare, things like that, normally get them. Music Cares does help support that so they provide money to that but then there's also grammy events throughout the year and there's a lot of stuff leading up to grammy week too that the recording academy does put on so it is run as a nonprofit organization to do these things but over the years there have been few instances of notorious people that have led and been the head of the recording academy that have been using the money for crazy things like whether it's private jets and stuff like that but that hasn't been a thing that we've seen more recently in, in recent years, though. The Grammy has undergone this, you know, major soul searching process, right? That involved the installation of a new leader, Harvey Mason Jr., who's, I think, you know, pushed a, a lot of the a lot of the initiatives to kind of broaden the audience of voters and the, and the audience of, you know, the actual audience of viewers. Um, no matter how hard you're trying to do it, um, change is slow. And uh, and again, you know, you've you got to balance the priorities. It's an interesting process too, because even if you want to create change, like you're a new leader, there's so much ingrained that's tough to do. And I think one of the things they've installed recent years is tweaking the process a little bit. So of course, the initial phase is everyone submits in their submissions to the Recording Academy. Then songs get filtered into different genres based on someone listening to the song and then deciding, okay, was this song 51% or 50% in this category, this category, you put it there. These things obviously aren't public in terms of who it is, but you could assume that these are journalists or people that are respecting the space that are listening that are part of these committees. And then things get put in a different category. So sometimes people can be upset about, oh, well, why is this artist in this category, but not in that category? Yeah, there's weird things that can happen with that once you get into some of these percentages and things like that. But it's a combination of the artist submitting it and then the committee deciding it. And then after the committee decides it, then it goes back out to the voters again, who then pick from that decided group who should then win the particular awards you know with any type of categorization sometimes it's hard there's an artist that's just on the bubble and it's not really the grammy's fault you know you just have to say whether somebody is pop or rock or or hip-hop and i I remember at forbes we you know this was always a a conundrum when we talked about hip-hop because akon always ended up on the hip-hop cash kings list was he really hip-hop or was he more pop uh I don't know. I mean, but he really embraced hip hop and he even made this little jingle where he sang, I'm a Forbes cash king and that's my style. I'm going to be here for a minute, rather be here for a while. My mind on my money, my money, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, I I don't know. I mean, it's kind of really in the eye of the beholder and you're always having to make these these, uh, kind of decisions. Now I feel like I have to look back and see if he was nominated in particular categories, which ones he was nominated in. Yeah. Well, I think the, the Grammys also sometimes has these sort of like Weasley categories, like best urban something. And, and you know, which is like, I think it does a lot of times come down to race, right? I mean, like in a way, it's just sort of, a, it just segregates black music and white music. And this has been a thing that's been going on with the Grammys, with the music industry for however many decades. Um, 
you know, as opposed to looking at what 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 type of music is this and as opposed to sort of what is the race of the person making it it brings me back to people often bucketing beyonce and rihanna for so long and the only reason that you're bucketing these two artists is because they're both black women that are making music but especially when rihanna was in her phase of making an album a year that was pop music yeah absolutely but I don't think that I think the Grammys had and others had tried to lean her into R&B because of the label that she was signed to because of the people that she had co-signs with. But that was pop music. I think people categorize individual artists as opposed to individual albums. Right. I mean, if you look at Beyonce's work, you know, you could put some albums in pop or some in R&B or, you know, I mean, it, but it kind of depends on the album. Uh, right. I mean, it, it um you know, th there's like, I think a tendency to treat an artist as a monolith and not sort of an evolving. Right. Like her Dangerously in Love, that was a pop album. Formation, that was an R&B album. And Renaissance was a house music album. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, the, they wouldn't ever sort of divide, divide it up in that way. So like Darius Rucker probably did get nominated at some point in country, uh, you know, after having been nominated for you know whatever alternative or something with hootie and the blowfish right i think they were considered yeah. rock yeah or at, rock at, yeah. at the time yeah. but drake is an interesting example here because before he refused to submit grammys anymore and he actually may have recently i'll need to double check and see but before he claimed to stop playing the game his double album scorpion i don't know if that was in the rap category because he was half singing half rapping on it and I forget how many tracks were on each side, but I think certain submissions like that have always been interesting for them to navigate. Post Malone was another artist too. Yeah. Where, oh yeah, he was the other really tricky one. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think he was ever nominated in the rap category specifically, but he did get nominated in the album of the year or song of the year type of categories. Let's take a quick break for this week's chart metric stat of the episode. If you're listening to this podcast, You've probably heard Scissors Kill Bill at least a handful of times. Well, the 2024 Record of the Year nominated song is currently on 101 editorial playlists on Spotify, 109 on Amazon, 64 on Apple Music, 13 on Deezer, and even more likely on all of the other streaming services that are out there. This has been one of those hard-to-miss songs this year, and the stats prove it. Let's get back to the episode. And with this, as we're talking about these awards, it's probably a good point to talk about how Grammys do get won because we laid out a very traditional process of you submit this and then people vote, but it's not just that. These are awards. These are things that people want and there is campaigning that goes into it and that campaigning, for better or worse, does make a considerable impact in terms of who gets in and who doesn't. This is about making sure, if you, especially if you're a record label, you want your artist to be perceived as someone that is likable, someone that these voters do like, someone that feels like they respect the process. And unfortunately, many of the voters as well may be more likely to vote for people that 
they feel connected to. And if we all have our genre preferences and tendencies, this leans back to some of the ingrained racism and the ingrained challenges of sexism that have plagued this award show for years. But all of those things come into play. But it's been interesting because that opens up the whole for your consideration business that drives so much of the trade publications revenue in this space that drives so much of the focus there because you have the record labels and you have the teams putting so much money into making sure that their artists get awareness. You have the artists themselves also sending these packages, these very luxurious packages to who people that they perceive to be Grammy voters or people that are part of the recording academy you have all of these artists that are taking place in different Grammys events. And then also things like how do particular artists react when they lose an award? What does that see? Like, I think the voters want to see someone that feels like they respect the process. I think there was a lot written about when Taylor Swift didn't win album of the year for lover, she must have said something along the lines of, okay, I take that as a sign that I need to work harder and do even better. And it's great that you know, she clearly has been rewarded after that for albums like Folklore. We'll see if she ends up winning for Midnight's. But I think the frustrating aspect of that as well is that she is an artist who, if she does the good merit-based work, she will get rewarded for that. But there's several other artists that don't look like Taylor Swift that don't feel like they have been able to get there anyway. So there's all of these things in the huge business that goes into making this work and how that actually plays into the artists that release music and then who walks on that stage and accepts an award. Yeah. And I think the other component to the voting process that might be the most important in determining who wins is vote splitting. This happened so many times over the years when there were usually like five nominees, I think, per for, for the big awards. Definitely there's an element of racism and, you know, maybe in a less nefarious way, just like there are a lot of people who like rock music and they've, they've added more nominees to all these categories to try to create a more diverse field and, and, you know, give more access chance to win. So, you know, you might have Beck and then Drake and Beyonce and Rihanna and, you know, a, a whole bunch of young people. And then Beck still wins because the, the young people split, you know, the, the young people vote. And, and then you just have this like very strong core of old people who want Beck to win. And that's not to say that Beck doesn't deserve to be honored or whatever, but the Beyonce album was transformational. How do you make sure that the transformational albums win, you know, if you have these different voting blocks and you're not doing it by some some kind of, you know, fan choice? Uh, I think I think that's a conundrum. So I don't think it's ranked choice voting. I think it's just straight up who gets the most votes. It's surprising how, I'm sure to you as well, it's something that does seem straightforward where, okay, if I watch a two-minute video on how this works, I get it. But it's one of these things that adds friction in a cat in a thing where how do you even get people to actually vote when they are voting members? Right. So I'm curious how that would be. But the thing that makes this whole thing tough is that narratives can be tough to get or tough to draw when we don't actually have the hard numbers to see. Like this isn't like a presidential election where we can see, you know, Chris Kornacki on the blue map pointing yeah. to different states and seeing, okay, it's this zip code in Arizona that really decides the presidency. And I wish we could do that, but the only people that actually know the numbers are the people at, I forget if it's Deloitte or uh, PWC that do the vote counting, but I wish they would make it public because I think in theory, yes, it clearly makes sense that Beck 
or even in more recent years, particular artists were able to win. I think even Harry Styles' win last year for Album of the Year was a little bit of a surprise, just considering some of the other albums nominated. And then the year before, John Batiste was definitely a surprise to a lot of people. You look at the odds makers, he had the lowest odds of yeah. any of the other seven albums that were nominated for Album of the Year. But it just goes to show that there's just so little that we actually do know because we just can't see the underlying data. Right. And, you know, it's so it's not always racism. And and sometimes you can have a, a situation where, you know, the, the vote splitting is done actually with the, the pop, the people who want the pop music split all the votes. And then the people who are sort of like hardcore, you know, about the music, um, you know, not not really caring about the commercial sales, you know, end up voting for somebody. And then you get a great musician like John Batiste, you know, maybe also surprising to whatever people thought that somebody more famous would win. I think it's interesting because that's always been a disconnect because I think a lot of these, whether it's betting odds or things like that, people often assume that the biggest artists are the ones that do at least deserve some recognition. And there are Grammy voters that have said like particular things where, hey, we do look through the nominations to make sure that certain things don't come through. They didn't say which songs. There was someone that had written a op-ed in Complex. It was like one of those things where a Grammy voter tells all. And they didn't say which song specifically, but they talked about how if a song like the Macarena was like gaining steam, the a committee could potentially come in and say, no, we don't care if that's what people voted for. Like that is going to make our show look crazy. But even though they've done that, there are plenty of awards that have happened that do make their show look crazy. So who knows? After after that news came out that there were these sort of secret committees and, you know, being able to veto certain songs and things like that, that they, they kind of reorganized so that that wasn't really a part of the process, you know, theoretically, but who knows what goes beyond goes on behind the scenes. Now. The other thing that's interesting, too, is looking at artists like, let's take someone like her, for instance, she is someone that has been a bit of a Grammys darling where I feel like there was a run stretch there where she was always performing at the awards show. She was always getting nominated, makes good music and does a lot of the checkbox things that I think do appeal with Grammys voters in a lot of way. Doesn't necessarily make big commercially successful hit records, at least compared to some of the other people that she often gets nominated for. But in some way, there's something that still feels true about that, where it isn't just awarding the biggest commercial success just for the sake of it but there also shows that okay there is something that is very much in line that does show how someone like her can get there versus others so it's always interesting to see artists even newer ones that can benefit from the system to some extent yeah and i think she's also pretty unique as an artist when you really stand out as your own thing it makes it harder to do have your you know the vote split and um and easier for you to benefit from other artists splitting the votes. I think here we should probably talk about the Grammy bounce, the Grammy bump. And this is something that you've written a lot about. And we talked earlier about how when you got pitches, you always tried to find the financial angle. So I know it's a very hard thing to place the dollar amount on specifically, but how would you quantify? How would you think about the impact of that Grammy bump or that Grammy bounce? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it really it depends on the artist. It depends where in their sort of life cycle they get their, their big Grammy recognition. One of the things that's really weird about the Grammys is that the scoring period is not the calendar year. And so it goes from what, it's like an October to October. Yeah, it's like yeah. October 1st to September 30th. The Grammys take place in, in January, February. 
uh, of, of one year, but like the biggest album of the year might have come out a few months earlier in like November, right? In the lead up to the holidays. In fact, a lot of big music comes out in the fourth quarter. Um, and that's been the case for, you know, decades. So, um, it, it happens really frequently that the albums being on, like the biggest album that people are talking about over the prior several months is not even eligible for the awards. And you have, you know, best new artist, right? Like, what does that even mean? You know, you had, you have people winning best new artists who've released multiple albums. So there are all these kind of wonky, uh, technicalities that can result in, you know, something that is not very current ending up winning. And so if you have somebody who has a big album, but it basically came out a year ago, they're not going to get as big of a bump because they already, you know, got whatever bump they're going to get from the album. But if you have somebody who puts out an album on like September 28th or something, um, then you're going to get a bigger bump. I mean, the question is, is the bump from the Grammys or just from your your natural momentum? In, in my research, you know, talking to producers and um, songwriters and recording artists. I mean, it does seem like, you know, depending on the, if it's like fairly early in your career, uh, it, it can double, you know, the amount of money that you make, uh, whether it's your fee for producing a song, um, your guarantee for a live show, it does seem to go up considerably. Uh, you know, I, I think really it is so hard to separate out though, the, the Grammy recognition from the, the noise of, of the momentum of your career, right? Um, like is the Grammy merely an acknowledgement of your momentum or does it create the momentum? And, you know, if you can say like, hey, I'm a Grammy award-winning engineer, uh, yeah, you can definitely, you will always be able to get a higher fee. Um, you know, it's sort of like if you're a book author and you have a, your prior book was on the New York Times bestseller list. It doesn't really matter if it was your prior book or like five books ago. You can always say you're a New York Times bestselling author. Uh, it's like a blue check <laughs> in the days when that meant anything at all. If you're otherwise not famous, it, it can help you make a lot more money. Going back to John Batiste, he's a perfect example for this. They just released American Symphony, that special on Netflix. I don't think that happens unless he wins album of the year two Grammy seasons ago. I mean, I know that he was on Colbert and he was on TV and stuff like that, but that put him into another level. Meanwhile, someone like Beyonce, who many of her fans and others have been waiting for, okay, when is she going to get recognized? I think we've passed the point where Beyonce is going to have any additional boost in her career because of it. I mean, she's already selling out the biggest stadiums in the world. If it wasn't for Taylor Swift's past year, we'd be talking about how Beyonce had one of the biggest years you've ever seen a musician see. It's almost like when Leonardo DiCaprio won his Oscar in 2015 for The Revenant. At that point, this has already been de-risked. This is the biggest actor in the world. She's already getting the biggest guarantee that that you could get. You know, whoever you think is the best musician or who who sells the most. And, And, you know, you have to nod some extent to commercial success if you want people to watch the ceremony because that's what they listen to. Um, but if you look at somebody like Jean-Baptiste, I mean, he's a really interesting case because people already knew him from Colbert. And I think he was still, yeah, he was still on Colbert when he won all those awards. I think not only did he win album of the year, but he was the, he had the most wins like of any artist that year. Does Jean-Baptiste leave Colbert and, you know, just basically do his own thing full time if he doesn't win all those awards? I don't know. I mean, I think that was like really a moment of um, arrival for him and sort of like uh, establishing himself separate from Colbert. And, you know, that really did allow him to to make this 
career change um, and, and kind of stand on his own in, in, um, in a way that he hadn't before. The weekend and Bruno Mars are probably interesting comps here because Bruno Mars is a Grammys darling at this point. Silk Sonic did very well at the Grammys when they had Leave the Door Open and then the 24 Karat Magic album had one album of the year, song of the year, record of the year. But The weekend, someone that blew up around the same time that Bruno Mars did, famously didn't get nominated for any of the big awards when After Hours and Blinding Lights came out and wrote that long, scathing message, very upset about it because he had the biggest album of the year. He had the biggest song of the year. Blinding Lights is the most streamed song in the history of Spotify. This does go back to the commercial versus um, critical acclaim aspect, but how different is that really going to play in either of their careers moving forward? I think Bruno Mars did break a little bit earlier, but part of that was the Grammys. I mean, he he happened to to have, um, I mean, what was it, Duops and Hooligans? Uh, yeah, Duops and Hooligans, because he was a guest on that beautiful girl song with B.O.B. Right. And then, yeah, Duops, that, that was the first album. You know, he performed on the Grammys. He was nominated. He like, did the Super Bowl pretty early in his yeah, career, maybe yeah. like 2013, 2014, somewhere around there. Yeah. And I guess probably that happened, you know, if the Super Bowl happened around the Grammys, it was kind of like same deal. But, I mean, you could tell the Grammys were really important. I remember the first year before he really blew up, he did this like showcase for this in LA. It was like 300 people or something. And, and he played his entire debut album. It was only maybe 10 songs. And then he just did like belted Celine Dion covers the rest of the night. It was it was so much fun. And yeah, that's like kind of the charm of Grammy week. And you get to have these moments right before somebody blows up. And um, and in Bruno Mars's case, I think he kind of blew out his voice because then he had to perform the next night. And he, he sounded kind of hoarse. So. But I, I do think for him, the, that kind of energy around the Grammys helped elevate him to like super duper star status, you know, maybe a little quicker than he might have otherwise got to. And Bruno Mars's Grammy darling more than The Weeknd, or it was just happened to be that, you know, Bruno Mars' album came out in a time window that made it more conducive to being nominated. I feel like that event you just brought up is kind of one of those like early planting the seeds campaign things that we're talking about, right? Yeah. And we think about how romantic the relationship that people have with music is. If you could remember that, I'm sure other Grammy voting members can remember that too. Yeah. And how that sticks in there was like, oh yeah, that Bruno Mars guy, look at where he is now. You know, it was the night before the Grammys, people had voted for whatever they were going to vote for, but it does, it does kind of create, you know, the ongoing, um, affinity for for an act that right. you know that might stick with voters and playing grammy showcases over the years and, and i think with that too it's probably a good point just to talk about some of the controversies and we've talked about some of this but whether it's controversies or overlooked or snubs and things like that a top three of examples that you think were the biggest travesties and we could talk about all of them we could go into a few of them we know that there's been several but any of them that stick out for you Probably the top three. I mean, definitely 2011. Um, the nominees for Best New Artist included Drake, Bieber, Esperanza Spalding, which, I mean, she's an amazing musician. And, you know, like, I think Berkeley College of Music and, you know, like, just incredible. Um, nobody had ever heard of her, really, until she won this award. And it was like, wait, what? I mean, this was supposed to... I think Bieber was the favorite that year. Mayhem in the in the media room. People are like, wait, what? Who Who is this person? And when Macklemore won Best New Artist over Kendrick, 
uh that was that was a huge shocker and Macklemore did this sort of weird thing where like he published his text to Kendrick about like saying that Kendrick deserved it instead but he was like seeming to do some kind of virtue signaling that was just kind of icky and that kind of marked the beginning of the downturn for Macklemore. And we talked about um, Beck's mourning phase over Beyonce, Beyonce in, in 2015. That was an enormous gasp as well. I give you those three. I mean, there's so many more. In 2012, Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy didn't get nominated for album of the year. I think it's the best album of the century. And, you know, obviously um, have my differences with Kanye and how can you not nominate that? I mean, uh, it's, yeah. there, there wasn't even a like an audible side to be had because you know, it wasn't even nominated, but I think that's the biggest number of all time. Yeah, that was going to be mine. It's one of those where that felt like a clear response of the post Taylor Swift VMAs moment, because before that, Graduation was nominated, Late Registration was nominated for Album of the Year. Kanye was someone that was recognized. I mean, he had that infamous speech where when everyone's like, oh, what's Kanye going to say? I guess we'll never know that he holds up his <laughs> Grammy Award. It was really cool to see. But this is someone that was respected and liked. But after the Taylor Swift VMA incident, I do think that it's one of these ironic things because we probably wouldn't have even had My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy if it weren't for that yeah. incident. But he did get punished essentially for that. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if it was a behind the scenes, you know, uh, veto thing. Like we don't want him up here, like being a distraction for our fancy award ceremony again. And he did win best rap album. He did. Yeah. But it, I think it was probably in the, in the pre ceremony, right? Yeah. Or it's like in the other building and I didn't show up. I don't know. Right. It was uh, like, here, take this. Yeah. 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 Those moments. I know the Grammys tries to, uh, shy away from them, but they also do create, ratings and you know controversy sells and yeah i think i think that's the worst one and and even your classification of that being the album of the year or the album of the century i don't think is a stretch we saw the year end or the decade end breakdowns of the 2010s and there were several publications that had my beautiful dark twisted fantasy as if it wasn't in the number one it was in the top 10 of all the music that came out there one that i'll mention is i have a pet peeve when movie soundtracks win album of the year the oh brother where art thou soundtrack won album of the year entertaining movie don't get me wrong but when's the last time anyone had a conversation about that movie it wasn't like Whitney Houston, The Bodyguard. And you're like, okay, that had a signature song that clearly lived on and it was centered around this musician that was essentially her releasing an album as part of this. But that wasn't what this was. So stuff like that always stick out to me. And it's not like I thought that the the Recording Academy were big like Cohen's Brothers supporters or anything like that, right? Yeah, but, yeah, no, yeah. That is a funny one, yeah. We should talk about improvements for the show. I think we probably talked about a few of those, but if you had a magic wand and could change a few things about the Grammys, what would you change? I would change the eligibility period, um, just make it calendar year, have the ceremony in, you know, I don't know, February or March, late February, early March, whatever. How long does it really take to you know, turn the votes around. I mean, you know, th this isn't being done by snail mail anymore and it would make the ceremony more relevant. It would, you know, the Academy to honor the music that came out in the fourth quarter and it would reduce the confusion over like, wait, why is this, you know, album from a year ago uh, being nominated for album of the year? Certainly terminology, you could call it, I don't know, instead of song of the year, maybe like best songwriting of the year, something like that. Maybe that's not the best, but 
I don't know. Think of something, right? That make, would help. Make yeah. it a little clearer. Um, clarify the the best new artist one. Uh, I mean, that's that's a great way to bring new audiences in. But like, let's not be honoring artists that are not new artists for for that. If we really want to bring new people in, can we talk about uh, that one for a second? Yeah. Because I feel like if you called it breakthrough artist, I yeah. know that may seem like a word that can like be that. ambiguous, but at least it says yeah. something. I mean, Billie Eilish had done at least three or four tours by the yeah. time she won Best New Artist in 2020. Yeah, yeah. Like, what are we doing? What are we doing? I didn't. Bonnie Vare won after having released, like, multiple albums, I think. And I think another thing that would that would be helpful is, along with moving the, the awards ceremony to accommodate the scoring period of the calendar year, um, like, could you put it on, a like, a national holiday or something every year? Maybe put it on President's Day so that people know, all right, you know, this is – it's a tradition. All oh, the Grammys are always on President's Day, something like that. Um, I think with these sort of like big television spectaculars, the ones that do really well, even though you might not think they would keep doing well, but like, you know, Fourth of July fireworks or like the Thanksgiving Day Parade, people tune into those reliably. Um, and P.S. music is a huge part of that. These live performances that come along with them. You know, if you could sort of tie it to a to a, like a, a time when people know that it's going to be on, I think that would be really helpful. The live performances on the Grammys, I think, are great. I think they're really imaginative. They're these amazing mashups of like old and new. Um, you know, I mean, what was it? There was the one year where it was like Kanye and Rihanna and Paul McCartney. And there were all these memes about, you know. Oh, like that British guy with Rihanna is, like might have a career ahead of him. You know? <laughs> How do you deal with the fundamental problem that young people don't care about award ceremonies anymore? And Dan, do we care about award ceremonies anymore? Uh, we were talking about this, like, are we going to have a predictions thing? And we're like, wait, who's who's nominated again in all the categories? I don't know, you know, which is kind of an indication <laughs> that maybe there's this really deep problem about award ceremonies uh, when the the like music. You know, uh, experts are like, wait, who's, <laughs> you know? It's a shame. I really wish it was different. I feel like if I could wave a magic wand, less categories would be something I would do. And I know a lot of people were probably upset because that means a lot of people that don't get nominated. But I think that the more of these non-above-the-board categories that you have, the more of an excuse I think it gives to not have those same artists represented. For instance, I think a lot about the Latin Grammys and it feels bittersweet because on one hand, it's great to see Latin artists get their recognition given how much influence and continued sustained growth we've seen over the past 20, 30 plus years with all the artists we've seen. But on the other hand, I haven't seen that many Latin artists get rewarded for any of those big four categories in that same type of way. And if Bad Bunny puts out a masterpiece, is he going to get nominated and celebrated the same way because he already got nominated by the Latin Grammys? And to a similar extent, I feel the same way about some of the genre categories that we've continued to add. It's like, we don't need more best rap performance, best rap sung slash performance or any of this stuff. We just need the times when someone like a Kendrick or Jay-Z puts out a masterpiece Make sure that that is being recognized on the biggest stage as possible. And so that's one thing I would do. Less categories overall. It's really hard that when you think kind of more granularly about um, some of the categories that get cut in, in these cullings, right? And, you know, and it's it's things like different subgenres of like Mexican music or, you know, like folk music or Hawaiian music or something like that, um, where winning a Grammy can have the deepest impact on somebody's career. Like if you have a Grammy for best Hawaiian album, you know, that's like 
can change your entire career. Again, it's the balancing act. Like, how do you reward the the big names and and kind of you know kind of streamline the that's what makes it like so tough too and i keep the qualification in mind with the suggestion but another change that i would make this goes back to something i shared earlier but how can you make the delivery or the sequence of how the award is awarded make that more intriguing so it makes it more intriguing to the television product outside of the actual awards themselves so can you add some drama like if there are eight artists nominated for album of the year could you go off kind of like one by one to be like okay in the artist that got the least amount of votes let's have a moment <laughs> to celebrate them then you do the seventh yeah. then you do the sixth right i don't think they would do that because they don't may not want to hurt anyone's feelings but it would make for interesting award shows i think about back when i used to watch american idol and how that was so much of the drama behind it of just seeing how you got and then it's like two groups on stage at the end and then you know and the winner is this i know they would never do it that way yeah, but yeah. stuff like that would be would be fun and i think in general more broadly with that comes show us the results i want to see the results <laughs> yeah that would be really fun yeah but i their way of like you know we want it to be more dignified and and sort of going back to the roots of music and and wanting it to, to be a not sleazy business you know uh they, they they would probably be disinclined to have more drama um unfortunately before we close things out let's end this on a high note though and talk about some of the more fun aspects so you and i both know that grammy week is a very fun experience in la for a lot of the people in the industry the major record labels the major streaming services all the big partners have their big parties they have their big events if you're listening to this around the time that we're listening you may be on your way to one of these events right now and that's been a cool thing to see because it does bring the industry together to celebrate and it's one of these moments where regardless of all of the challenges all of the negotiations of who's suing who who's doing what let's all come together at this party and just kind of hang out for a few hours and see this record label's nominee for best new artist perform like that stuff that stuff's fun yeah i mentioned this before with the the bruno mars singing celine dion covers but there are a lot of great events like that where you get to see acts uh either before they get really big or really big acts that are playing in smaller venues and it's just sort of like the you know the the grammy crowd it is it's like a great chance for people in the industry uh you know to to have these moments that you know where, where you just get to see act or, you know, see different people in, in, in smaller settings than you, than you would otherwise. And, and and that really is sort of the fun of it all. Right. And I think this is too why this award show really, I think, works so well in L.A. because that's where so much of the industry is. If it's not in here, obviously it's been in New York several years. And I think just given how much of the industry is here in New York too, it's worked quite well. But it's a bit ironic that it didn't work in Vegas because Vegas has clearly, especially in the past five, 10 years, become more and more of the entertainment capital of the world. But I didn't go to the Grammys in Vegas that happened a couple of years ago during COVID. But I also heard from enough people that it just wasn't the same. And for all of the marvelous things that Vegas is from an entertainment landscape, it doesn't have the same vibe in order to make this work where some of the most exclusive parties is going to this executive's home or going to this yeah, place that exactly. they rented out and being able to have that kind of vibe. And, and Vegas is kind of an exhausting place to be for an entire week. You know, it's one thing to go for a weekend or, or what have you, but, you know, are you really going to sustain like a week being in Vegas? And um, yeah, I think that's exactly it. Like you say, the, you know, the, the intimacy of the Grammys and, and these parties that happen around it are, are really important. And you know, I think for a while, um, 
like in the beginning of my time covering the Grammys and, and being part of the, that whole Grammy week, it was cool to know, okay, everybody's going to be in LA for this week and you can get a lot of meetings done. Like a lot of work is done yeah. during, during Grammy week. And then as time went on though, I think the beginning of the 2010s was just when the music industry had, had sort of, you know, settled in LA, moved over from New York, was spread between New York and LA and, and some other places. But I think now it takes on an added significance because the, the music industry is having, you know, sort of more uh, nodes of more, more different sort of bases, right? I mean, you have people coming in now from all over the world, um, increasingly, you know, as music is becoming a more and more international genre. I can't even think of a place in Las Vegas where you would have the Rock Nation brunch. Yeah, yeah, really. What are you going to do? I mean, it's ironic because I know that the Bellagio and all those places have so much luxurious places, but it just doesn't have the same kind of vibe. Yeah, no, you're right. Well, before we close things out, anything else on the Grammys? Uh, I think uh, I think that about does it. Yeah, are you, are you going to watch this year? Are you, are you headed out there? Or are you, you going to tune in remotely? Yeah, I'll go for at least one night. Um, it's a little it's a little close on the on, on the baby watch clock, yeah. but, uh, but 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 I was at least able to get one night out. So at least I haven't planned. I mean, I could always bump it if things come. But yeah, yeah. Are you? Uh, I'm coming from a little, little farther away uh, <laughs> than you are, so also you know depends on daddy duty. Uh, so we'll see. But I don't know. It probably it becomes one of those things where I'm sure we'll both have maybe our daughters one day would be like, hey, can you bring me to the Grammys? Yeah. Like you go. And it's like, OK, all right. Yeah, now I have be, an that excuse. Would be fun. That would be fun. Yeah. Zach, it's been a pleasure. Thanks as always. Yeah, Dan. Likewise. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Send it to one or two people you think would really get value out of listening to this episode. And while you're at it, if you could rate and review the show, that would be great. Rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts, rate the podcast on Spotify, rate the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. That helps make sure that the word gets out about Trapital and what we're building here. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you next time.